Hello and welcome to this episode of Primarily Context-Based. This podcast is a collaboration between CTOcraft and Skillerwhale, and it was inspired by the Q&A site Stack Overflow. On Stack Overflow, questions have to have a single right answer, and questions can be closed and archived because they're considered primarily opinion-based. Well, we think that the most interesting questions don't have a single right answer, and they are primarily context-based. In this podcast, we take one of those questions and talk about a range of answers and the context that makes them appropriate. My name's Howell Carver. I'm the CEO of Skillerwell, where we do targeted capability training. That means individually personalized, hands-on sessions with a live expert delivered remotely in one-hour chunks. I've been a CTO and I've run tech leader dinners for the last three or four years or so. I've also been a CTO coach. And in those experiences, one thing I found is that the same questions come up, but with different answers every time. And that's because context is critical. Today, we're going to be answering the question of how and when do I address diversity in my tech team? And to help me answer that, I'm joined by Laura Taco. Laura, hello. Tell us about yourself. Hi, Howell. Great to be here. I'm Laura Taco. I'm an independent engineering leadership consultant. Um, before I started consulting, I was VP of engineering, director and senior director level at companies um, in the startup size, going to medium-sized 600 employees or so. I'm really interested in helping companies grow specifically their engineering and product development teams from the seed stage when the team is just being founded uh, into kind of the larger scaling phase. That's when a lot of those growing pains get worked out and diversity on an engineering team comes up all the time because hiring is such a critical component of team growth. And the the hot question is, how do I hire a diverse team? And it depends. That's the answer. <laughs> yeah. That's why we're here. That's why we're here, exactly. And I should say that our our plan for this podcast is not to talk about the arguments for and against diversity. I'm not sure there are any against, but if there are any, we're not going to cover those either. And um, lots of people I think would personally want it because it fits with their own personal ethics. But I think there are also some very strong commercial reasons for choosing to be a more diverse organization. Instead, we're going to be talking about how to achieve it. And I guess what we'll also be talking about is inclusion and by inclusion. I, Laura, do you have a, a definition of the difference between diversity and inclusion? This is something, let's let's start a conversation about it. And then I'm curious also about, about how you understand it. The definition I always use is diversity is just simply how diverse your team is. What, you know, how do people self-identify? Do you have enough uh, spectrum and breadth of types of people, types of backgrounds, types of ethnicities and genders at the table. But inclusion goes beyond that. It's not just a numbers game. It's actually making sure that when those people come to the table, that the table can accommodate them. So you may put forth a lot of effort to hire a diverse team, but if you don't have an inclusive culture to retain those people and actually get the value that they bring, it doesn't really, you're not getting a great return on that investment um, of, of investing so much in recruiting diverse team. Is that how you understand it as well? I think that's exactly right. So inclusion is the, the sort of necessary step for getting the benefits of diversity. And I think the only thing which you, I think you implied, but maybe didn't say explicitly was that it's about people being comfortable participating and sort of being themselves and being allowed to, uh, expose the aspect of themselves that that makes them diverse and adds that diversity. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I've also seen, you know, teams struggle. They can, they can recruit or maybe even make some key hires, some quote unquote diverse hires, which is not great language. And we can maybe talk about that in a little bit, but they've um, made some, some hires to make their team more diverse, but because they skip that inclusivity step, once the people arrive, they're more likely to leave because the team isn't actually accommodating um, or welcoming to their participation so it's alienating and they're going to go somewhere else. Mm. And I think that point about the language of a diverse hire is a, a really good one and is worth digging into. Can you tell me what, what's your reaction when you hear that, that phrase? I think when I hear that phrase, I hear it coming from a place of good intention. Um, and it's really, I think, coming from a, a, an education opportunity is what I would consider it. <laughs> so a person is not diverse. Diversity is a quality that a team has. So if you have a team of all white men and you are trying to hire a woman, that woman is not a diverse hire. The, it's that your team lacks diversity and you're trying to increase diversity on your team. It's not a label to apply to an individual. I think it's quite, um, it's a bit like reducing that person to their, to their categories when, you, when the, the language of diverse hire is used. So I would very strongly encourage you to use, um, you know, we're looking to in increase diversity on our team and applying the diverse label to the team and not to the individual. Mm. And I think one of the dangers with that is that you could give the impression that someone has been hired because of the, the category they represent and because of their addition to the diversity of the team. Yeah, absolutely. And that's never a great feeling. Um, I've personally experienced that um, actually many times before because I get a lot of recruiting spam on, on LinkedIn and other places. And um, you know, some recruiters or, or even talent folks that are in-house will open with the line, we, we are looking to hire you because you're a woman. And I think they're coming from a place that, you know, that's that's show that's virtual signal virtue signaling about we care about diversity so we're going to hire because you're a woman but what that means to me is you're looking past the 15 20 years that I've spent in tech and you're reducing me just to my category and that's the reason you're interested in me for me it's an immediate turnoff um, mm. and I think there's just better ways to approach team building um, and, and approach if you have to do those cold outreaches um, with a recruiter with an in-house in-house talent um, person and you're looking to attract a diverse pool of candidates, there's other ways that are a bit more um, gracious to the person's experience that make them feel valued from the first conversation and not just reducing them to the category they fit in. Mm. As, as someone who benefits from a lot of societal privileges, it can be really hard for people, people like me and in my position to talk about diversity without it coming across as patronizing or virtue signaling. Is there advice you can give for how people should be, should be addressing diversity and how, how they should be talking about it? Yeah, that is a, that is a tough question. I have to think about it a little bit. In fairness, I should say you already gave some advice in talking about diversity of a team, not of an individual. Mm -hmm. And I suppose part of what's happening when someone sends you a job offer and it says, you know, oh, we'd love you to come and be a junior engineer in our team because you're a woman, they are effectively identifying you as a diverse person, um, which is mm -hmm. the opposite of your advice. Yeah, definitely. I think any time 
you reduce someone to a particular label, um, especially in a field that is as competitive for talent as tech, you know, you get, you're giving that candidate just another reason to say no thanks and to pass because they have more choice. Um, and, and the, the fact is as well, if you're a, a talented and accomplished engineer who identifies as a woman or comes from a different group or category that is underrepresented in, in tech, it, it can be the case that once you do find the company that's the right fit for you, that you might have a bit more leverage to close the deal because you are highly sought after. I think the there's a bit of an, an art and science to it. I will never be offended when it's very obvious that someone is approaching me for the right reasons. And I have been approached for jobs where the the CTO or the senior VP of engineering says, you know, diversity is incredibly important to us. I know we're not doing great on this, this, and this. Your expertise in X is is great. You know, you've had a really accomplished career. We think adding you to the leadership team is going to bring this unique perspective. And, you know, it's also in line with our values of hiring a diverse team. And here's our org chart. And you can look at all the women in leadership positions. That resonates with me. And that is going to open a door to a conversation. In that in that moment, when you're having a conversation with an individual, it often can just be distilled down to that exchange between you as a person who has societal privilege and the other person who maybe has some, but not as much as you. I find it most effective if you can stick to talking about the system and make it less personal. So for example, instead of um, instead of appealing to the personal and saying, we want, we want to hire you because you're going to add diversity to our team or even using that, um, that diverse hire language. Instead, you can talk about how your company is committed to having diverse and inclusive teams and maybe cite some examples of what you're doing. So you might talk about how you've made the hiring process more inclusive by doing X, Y, or Z, or you might talk about an inclusive parental leave policy or transgender health insurance policy or other types of inclusive policies to actually show it's not, it's not a transaction between you and the individual that you're reaching out to, but you're just giving more information about your company on a more global level or more team level that diversity and inclusion are important. I think that strikes a nice balance about being informative and you do want that person to see, but also, you know, backing it up a little bit and not, not just saying, you know, virtue signaling, we want to, we want to hire a diverse team, but actually showing what you're doing about it. Mm. I think most leaders find it hard to make their teams more diverse. Do you have a sense of why that is and what the underlying reasons are? Yeah, I think business pressure plays into a lot of it. Um, if you don't have buy-in from truly the C-level, it becomes really difficult to hire in a sustainable way that is also that also leads to the result that you want to see in terms of diversity and inclusion, or even, you know, pump the brakes on certain things and operate your team in a more sustainable way that that um, promotes inclusivity. And specifically, what I one example I can share is there's always tension between we have a job opening and we want to hire as fast as we possibly can, but we also want someone from an underrepresented background. It's not impossible for some, you to hire someone from an underrepresented background very quickly. I've seen it happen before. I've done it before. It is, it is rare. It is not common to do that. So you have to have support. If you're the leader of a team uh, or the leader of a company and you're looking to hire 
teams that are diverse and are inclusive, you have to recognize that it does take a bit longer because generally those candidates may be may take longer to attract. They might be feeling uh, or dealing with with symptoms of imposter syndrome where they might not feel qualified and it might just take a little bit more of a sell to try to try to get them in the door. They also just might need a little bit more proof and a bit more face time that the team that they're going to join is actually inclusive. And that just simply takes time. It takes contact time with the candidate and your team. Um, so if you're, you know, if you want to hire someone super fast and immediate, you can go to a staffing agency and have that role filled immediately. Mm. If you want to go through and really screen candidates and make sure that they're culture ads, not just culture fits for your existing culture, but culture ads and that they're adding something to your team, it's just simply going to take time. But if you're being measured on how fast you close a role, obviously there's going to be a bit of tension there. And that's a place I see teams, many teams struggle is reconciling those two pressures on the business. Mm. And I think that point about culture ad rather than merely culture fit is a really important one, not least because culture can be one of the barriers to changing, to improving diversity um, because culture is so slow to change and many aspects of culture can be a real barrier. I, I know I've been in situations where I've been, I've been granted permission to make to put effort into making a team more diverse, but not uh, to to spend any budget on it, or to try and have, uh, or at least any meaningful budget on it, or to try and have any cultural changes that might enable it. And so, I think, I mean, do you have any any thoughts about how you can mold culture and change it to enable diversity? Yeah, I think one of um, one of the most powerful tools that I pull out when trying to make a team uh, more inclusive and then therefore being able to increase diversity in the long run is making sure that everyone feels that their voice can be heard. And then also the other side of that is making sure that people understand what happens when their voice is heard. Oftentimes, if you want to give feedback to your team and then you feel like your feedback is getting ignored, you will stop giving feedback. And that's not a, that's, kind of breaks the cycle and, and breaks that that health that you want to see on your team. So it's really all about expectation setting and contracts. So very crisply, some techniques that I use and that you are, <laughs> please borrow these techniques and use them in, their, in your team because I found them to be um, successful on, on different types of teams is making sure that when you're making a, a very big decision, make it clear if, the, if you're having a meeting or having a discussion about it, is that discussion just a discussion? Are we discussing different things or are we coming to a decision? Just being really upfront about the purpose of the conversation can help people understand how they need to act and what they should expect as an outcome. If you're just discussing things, also make sure that it's not just the loudest people in the room. Typically, that coincides with people who have privilege and are coming from a background of privilege where they just expect that people will listen to them because that's how it's always been before. They might come with the loudest voice, whether that is actually the loudest voice taking up a lot of space um, or just expecting you know, to have the floor for a long time. I try to make sure that any opportunity for discussion has an asynchronous and a synchronous component to make sure that people can articulate in their preferred communication style and also that they have time to formulate an opinion. And that can just reduce the bias of listening to the loudest person in the room because it balances out, it, it kind of puts everyone on a bit more equal, equal footing um, for that particular discussion. When it comes to making a decision, it's really important to let your team know that you have taken into consideration all of the feedback that you've gotten. Um, there's nothing more demoralizing than maybe, you know, you are 
feeling a bit um, you're underrepresented on the team or you have a, an opinion that goes against the, the majority of opinion and then just feeling like your, your feedback wasn't considered at all. So on my teams, I try to stress, I want to hear your feedback, but hearing your feedback doesn't mean that I change my mind or that the team changes course based on what you think is going to happen. It means I'm going to listen to it and take it under consideration. And then we'll be transparent in the decision-making process. When people feel empowered to share their opinions in the way that's most preferential to them, and then they also understand what happens when they give that feedback, that's something that can be repeated and helps people feel included in the decision-making process. They feel included as a stakeholder and essentially leads to better results with more diverse uh, opinions, which is what we're, you know, that's the commercial case. One of the commercial cases for diversity and inclusion on the team is having those different perspectives. So um, techniques like that, leveling the playing field a bit can help um, teams just feel more empowered and, and each individual in the team feel like they're welcomed and that they belong there. Mm. That makes sense to me completely as a way of changing culture and improving the, the inclusivity of the culture of the organization and then getting the benefits of the diversity of the people you have. You mentioned before about things like policies and parental leave policies for example, as a way of improving hiring and getting a more diverse pool of candidates and therefore a more diverse team. Can you give people some more ideas for how they can improve their hiring processes and their candidate finding processes um, in order to gain a more diverse team? Your interview process is worth more than direct developer marketing or worth more than a lot of recruitment on on LinkedIn, there is nothing more than your interview process that speaks about how it is going to be to work on your team. Uh, so that is that will leave a footprint. It will be the thing that the candidate remembers. They will remember how they were treat how they were treated. They will remember how they feel. They will talk to people about it. So make sure that you are providing the best candidate experience. I think that is beyond the scope of just diversity and inclusion, but. Um, just general general good good business practice when it comes to interviewing i see teams um, i see some teams fall in the trap of confusing or kind of conflating a neutral interview process with an inclusive interview process and it's specifically tempting to do that um, in a field like engineering where it is you know, the tests pass or they don't pass. There's a bug or there's not a bug. There's an error, there's not an error. It's really tempting to kind of distill everything down to quantifiable metrics when the reality is hiring someone on your team is, there are parts that are quantifiable, but a lot of it is qualitative as, as well. Um, when I talk about neutral versus inclusive, one example of a neutral interview process is taking all personal data out of the interview process. Um, I see engineering teams do this in the form of we're going to have people do a coding test before we invite them to the interview process. If they pass the coding test, then they can proceed. That is a very neutral way of dealing with candidates, especially if you are expecting large inbound candidates. You're taking away um, personally identifiable information. You're just kind of looking at whether they pass the coding test or not. It's neutral, I would say. Where the inclusive part comes in, though, is you have to think about, first of all, who wrote that coding test? Is it someone from the dominant culture in your company? Um, that's something to, to think about. And then also, which types of candidates actually have time to do that coding test as the very first step 
of the interview process for a company where they've never talked to somebody, most likely, and they're applying inbound. So typically people that have time to do that are people who don't have dependents, they don't have children, they don't have care responsibilities, um, you know, people who are coming from a different socioeconomic class that might have to work two jobs, for example, they don't have time to do that. So just by creating this neutral interview process, you're actually quite alienating, um, not a, I would say good chunk, but there's, there's quite a lot of people that you're disenfranchising and, and making it very difficult for them to participate. And if I'm a candidate and I have either, I have to take this coding test or I can have a conversation with, with someone else at a different company, I'm going to skip the coding test because um, it's not, you know, it, it kind of reflects this very kind of, you know, this, this myth of like a merit-based type of, of team operation that for me is not quite appealing. And it's, I think it's not quite appealing for many people who don't come from, from a dominant culture, who don't have as much privilege as other people do um, on a team. What do you think about people who who approach diversity and say what we look for is not diversity of background or of kind of um, the, the kind of social categories that someone belongs to, but diversity of thought or people who say things like we don't need to have um, a team that represents different, lots of different ethnicities because we don't see color. Yeah, I see those um, as great excuses for not wanting to invest or perhaps not wanting to educate oneself about the value of diversity inclusion. So I've never, you know, to be honest, I've never heard those phrases come out of the mouths of people who are in a gender minority or a racial minority or a religious minority. I've typically only heard that come from people who already have a lot of privilege. It's like a rich person saying that, oh, money's not important and money can't buy happiness. Sure. <laughs> when when you've already got a ton of it, I'm sure you don't think about it. Um, so for me, I I train my interviewers to recognize the different power dynamics that exist during an interview process, and I think that is the responsible thing to do, and certainly a way not just to ad address unconscious bias, which is a, a whole different conversation about you know making sure that you recognize your unconscious bias. I have it, you have it, everyone has it. It's your brain's way of making little shortcuts, but how to, to kind of neutralize it so it doesn't rear its head during your interview process. But if I have an interviewer, you know, mentioning that they, you know, I don't see color or this candidate doesn't help our diversity because, you know, we're really only interested in gender diversity and this person is coming from a, ra a, a racial background that's not well represented. I think you're kind of, you know, you're, you're missing the point a bit about what diversity means. Um, and I think it's kind of a question of self-awareness or just doing a bit of self-reflection, but also opportunity for education, because it might just be that those people aren't equipped or don't quite understand the social context in which they're operating. Unfortunately, you know, at this point, I think we're beyond diversity 101. Like you said, this is not a conversation to say whether or not it's a good idea to be uh, to have a diverse and inclusive team, it's been well established that it is. And I think those people have resources available to them. And it's just a matter of encouraging them to find the time to educate themselves and make it a priority. Mm. The visual metaphor I always find myself thinking of when I, I hear people say, um, I don't see color, 
is of a, a video I saw, I think it was on Twitter. It's a, a hand dryer attached to a wall somewhere. And it's a close up on the hand dryer. And you see um, a white hand come in, go under the dryer. The dryer comes on, the hand goes away, the dryer goes off, dries it again. The hand comes in, um, dryer comes on, hand away, dryer off. And then you see a black person's hand come in and go under the dryer and it doesn't turn on. The point being that I am sure it would be very easy for people who don't see colour to design such a hand dryer and think, well, it works. But if you, if no one on the testing team uh, was a black person, then they may well not have discovered that it has this massive bug, that the way they're testing, whether there's a hand there, uh, is entirely dependent on the, the colour of the person's skin. The point being that it's entirely possible that if you don't see colour, you can still build products that absolutely do. Absolutely. And that's true for color. It's true for, you know, I think that's a great example of the automatic uh, hand dryers, soap dispensers, all these things. We can get into AI, facial recognition, all of these things mm -hmm. that are ethically contentious. And, you know, as someone who builds software, you are embedding your own bias into that software, whether you like it or not, it is just going to happen. Um, I also find that phrase, you know, we don't see color, I don't see color as just incredibly dismissive to the lived experience of the person that you're speaking with. So we do not live in a post-racial society. Um, people's skin color affects their daily lives. And if you're going to, you know, say, I don't care if you're white or black or blue or purple, well, people are not blue or purple. Okay. So that's a, I think that's just a, again, kind of, it's an opportunity for education, but also, an opportunity for accountability and for self-education because it's, it's dismissing and it's being, um, you know, it's a quite harmful attitude to have. Mm. Quite. One question that I think will be in the minds of people running smaller companies is when, when, when should I start prioritizing and thinking about diversity? So to, to reduce it to the kind of most simple case, if I'm making my first hire and I am, you know, white, cishet man, should I be concerned if that first hire represents no additional diversity to myself? And if not, what about the second hire? You know, at what point does it become a problem if the team is not representative? Yeah, this is something I, my advice is always the sooner the better. So I would even go back to your founding team. If your founding team is, um, you know, three white cishet males in their 20s, that is already foundation of a team that's not very diverse. Um, so it's going to take a little bit of effort then in your first hire to kind of not undo it. And certainly there's lots of reasons to have a founding team of that, that, um, that composure. It's who you're exposed with, maybe who you went to school with. But the sooner you can introduce diversity into your team, the better. Diversity will beget more diversity. It is much easier to hire candidates from, from diverse backgrounds when the team that's already in place has people uh, from diverse backgrounds. So the guidance I always, that I always offer is two is a coincidence, but three is a pattern. So if you have, you know, especially hiring engineering teams, if you're making that first hire and you end up hiring a cishet white male, okay, that's one. The bigger the team, though, the more you are establishing that pattern. If that person that you hire in your first role is someone who is not a white cishet male, the next candidates who interview who are not white cishet males are more likely 
to say yes, because they see themselves reflected. And when I say see themselves reflected, really, the, the bar here can be very low. It's just, is it not a cis, like, cishet white male dominated team? I think that's the signal that a lot of people look for. Um, they're going to look at your team pages. They're going to look at LinkedIn. They're going to try to see what's the composition. The composition is more diverse. It will be much easier to attract candidates from diverse backgrounds versus if you're, you have a monoculture and you're trying to break it. That's always much more difficult. Awesome. Laura, thank you so much. I think you've given people some really useful tools for how they should think about diversity and how they should speak about diversity, but also how they can do something about diversity and inclusion in their teams. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to talk about this. It's um, it's really contentious. It's certainly a hot topic. And I recognize I can't speak for everyone. You know, I am a white cishet woman and I am bringing my own privilege to the conversation as as we all are in my own unconscious bias. So I don't, um, I don't try to speak certainly for every woman. And I am, you know, there's lots of very qualified experts on diversity and inclusion that you can hire to consult your company on how to do it in in a great way and you should pay those people um you should pay them money because they are worth it <laughs> so uh, i'm glad to have have had the chance to hopefully plant some seeds and and start a bit of conversation around this today mm, absolutely well that's all we've got time for in this episode join us again next time when we will be discussing another question that is primarily context-based 